listening to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm very excited to welcome Maria Dominique Lopez. She is an intuitive energy reader, certified Reiki master, and spiritual mentor. She's worked with clients all over the world to heal themselves and their relationships. Maria is passionate about teaching people around decolonizing, Boundaries, Shame, Trauma, and Practical Spirituality, and her latest workshop, The Shadow Work of Boundaries, hones in on helping participants find their lurking shadows that keep them from being able to set and keep boundaries. Welcome, Maria. Hi, Nicolette. I'm so happy to be here. Hi. Okay, so many questions. I like have to rein myself in to even decide where to start, um, which maybe then I will start with boundaries. Um, so what are some of the things that get in the way of us keeping and establishing boundaries? This is probably the main thing I work on with my therapy clients. Well, yeah, spoiler alert, it's, it's unhealed shadows, really. Unintegrated shadows are the things that always keep us from setting or keeping boundaries. Um, so oftentimes we'll have programming that we'll be, we will have been taught since childhood, right? That teaches us that uh, our boundaries are either always going to be disrespected, so we don't even bother trying to set them anymore, or that our needs are worthless and therefore any boundaries we set around our needs, you know, aren't uh, reinforceable for us. Um, or, you know, societal programs, societal shadows like uh, the patriarchy tells women a lot don't be needy, right? We're not allowed to have needs. We're supposed to be these people just, yeah. you know. Or be a hostess. Don't say no. Right. Don't say no. Yeah, exactly. Um, a scarcity mindset is another shadow that will cause you to not be willing to set a boundary because, you know, if you have all these opportunities falling from the sky for you and you say no to any of them, what if I never have these opportunities again, right? So you say yes to everything and you don't set boundaries for your time because you have this scarcity mindset and that's a shadow you have to work through. Ooh, that's me. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and me too, you know, having come from a singing background in the entertainment industry, oh man, I mean, every gig that they want to offer you, you take it. They're not going to pay. That's okay. It's exposure. You take it, you know? <laughs> well, that's, a, I guess that's another question that it makes me think of like, are boundaries a privilege? Mm. And I don't mean all boundaries, but I'm thinking, like you said, like if you have the privilege to be able to say no to things because you're like, okay, I don't need the money or um, I have these other opportunities. Like how do we work through a shadow if it's like due to systemic shit? <laughs> Oh, and it's so true. And I think, uh, you know, it depends. For, for a lot of my clients, I do a lot of decolonizing work with my clients. And for a lot of them, it becomes a question of when you are experiencing burnout from not being able to set a boundary, usually it's because there are many boundaries in your life that you can't set. And oftentimes when you are living in a scarcity mindset, because you don't have the privilege of being able to say no to these other things, you also have the privilege of saying no to a lot of things, right? So you might find yourself unable to say no to or unable to set a boundary around racism and the way that you're treated in that way, or you might be unable to set a, a boundary in, in a patriarchal sense around your body and about um, the way that you want to have your body treated. How do you define uh, decolonizing? Uh, so it's interesting because even in the decolonizing world, people are starting to move away from that term because it implies a reverence towards colonization. It, it's, it's, an, it's a complicated and inter interesting discussion, uh, one that I'm, uh, I'm just still diving into myself and trying to wrap my mind around. But uh, this idea that I, tr I truly believe that every single person in existence is affected by our dominator culture. And what I mean when I say dominator culture is that we as a species 
have this mindset. And it's something that's so subconscious, right? It's, it's built into our little lizard brains, evolutionarily speaking, right? Where if I am at the top of the mountain, when I die, I win the game of life. And so it doesn't matter who I have to step over or who I have to push down in order to get there. As long as I have the most money, resources, descendants, the most legacy, all of those things, then I win the game of life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of that has to do with us constantly seeking meaning in our lives and hoping that that is the thing that will bring us the meaning. Uh, when really, truly, we know from, from our studies that, that have been done in psychology that the reason why we're all here is, is because we're hardwired for love and connection. So it's actually community that gives us that meaning to life and not the dominator culture. So when I say decolonizing, what I mean is that literally uh, reprogramming, unlearning, and reprogramming ourselves to understand that communal care is true humanity and that this, um, this kind of dominator culture of pushing down others so that way we can seem or feel more superior to others is not the way to live a life that's fulfilled and wholehearted. Mm. Oh, there were like so many good things in there. I like, I was just like finding myself nodding, <laughs> like pre- praising, <laughs> preaching. Um, so coming back then to the shadow parts of self, say a little more about like, what are, what are our shadow parts? Like, what are these shadows? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, for those listening who aren't aware, um, the term shadow was coined uh, by Carl Jung, who is a, a psychologist and um, also kind of like a magician, wizardy kind of guy, very interesting man. And, yeah, interestingly, uh, that, so I met I met Maria through Danny Santos, who if you listen to that episode, um, it's amazing. And if you haven't, go back and listen to it. Um, but he talks a lot about, I didn't know that Jung used like tarot and other things like that. So definitely like a witchy dude. Dude was witchy as fuck. Yes, it's true. Uh, but in the coolest ways. And I love that. He coined the term the shadow. And what he really meant when he talked about our shadow is this unacknowledged and yet not unseen part of ourself. So when you think about it, if you're standing outside and you're standing in the sun and you're looking up at the sun, you're not noticing that the sun's casting a shadow behind you. In, in theory, in your mind, you know it's there. It's the same with our, with our subconscious, our emotional self, our ego mind. There are many things that are shadows in our life. Some of them can be trauma. Uh, some of them are things that we've been, t- stories that we've told ourselves about ourselves or that we've been told about ourselves mm-hmm. that tell us that these are negative aspects of ourselves that we should repress and never show to anyone. And then we choose to ignore them and they become something that basically ends up running our entire show. Our entire conscious show is run by these unconscious shadows. There are also great, good shadows too. And this happens a lot with women, I find, especially living in our dominator patriarchal society, that women are told that we shouldn't be too emotional or too big, um, you know, just generally speaking, like in personality wise, like, oh, she's a lot, right? Um, how often do you find yourself apologizing for a strong emotion, even if it's a good emotion, even if you're really excited, you find yourself be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm just really happy right now. Yeah, everyone apologizes in my office all the time. Right, and that, that's a golden shadow. That's what we call a golden shadow, and a golden shadow is uh, you know, a positive aspect of our lives that if we allowed it to shine onto others would actually reinforce our own divine worthiness as beacons in the world to shine light onto others, to help guide them towards their own golden shadows, right? So integrating shadow work is is not just about all the negative stuff you don't want to look at. It's about the positive parts of yourself that you've been trained not to look at. And it's not just women who have this problem, right? I think that a lot of our Christian society particularly um, has taught people that humility and self-loathing are the same thing. That sacrificing your life is the ultimate way to show your humanity, right? That's Mm. that parallel of Jesus Christ, you know, being crucified on the cross. And and where we find so many people unwilling to set a boundary, it's that martyrdom complex of, oh, well, but, but if I don't set a boundary and if I sacrifice my own happiness, peace, well-being, health, mental health, spiritual health, physical health, then I'm being a good person, others, then I'm being a good person. So what do you say against that? I mean, I've, I've had clients actually in session who I've challenged 
kind of pushing the religion back on them in some ways of like, okay, if, if there is this, maybe at least in, in Christian belief, like if there is this Jesus Christ figure that you believe in, how are you saying you're going to minimize yourself if this person came and like died for you to be here and exist? Um, and now you're saying like, I'm not worth anything. So I kind of, I don't know, I've, I've flipped the script. I don't know if that's something you have done in your work or how you would challenge that belief. Um, but I'd love to know, yeah, how you challenge that belief with folks that you work with. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that, especially as we talk about decolonization, it's important for us to recognize that every organized religion on earth has been utilized as a tool of a colonizer. Hmm. Every single organized religion has been utilized as a tool of a dominator culture in order to oppress and gain power. Does that mean that I don't celebrate a religion? No, I'm Catholic. I definitely, am, you know, I love my religion. That said, I believe that all religions are inherently correct. I also believe that all religions are inherently incomplete. Religion is like a doily, a lace doily. And you hold your eye up to the doily and you can look through the little pinpoint of lace and on the other side is God. And if you just twist this doily a little bit, counterclockwise or clockwise, you adjust where the lace sits on your eye or what size of the lace hole is what your eye looks through and your entire vision and viewpoint of what God looks like changes. Mm -hmm. Each one of these holes in the doily is a, an organized religion. On the other side is God. So they all just don't quite have, they, they still see God, but they don't have a complete the same perception of what God is, right? So, uh, so what I tell my clients is, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm happy that you have a spiritual practice. I, uh, part of what I teach in my, my trauma programs is post-traumatic growth. And one of the things that studies have shown that you absolutely have to have for post-traumatic growth is a spiritual practice and a community of support. And, uh, and spiritual practice can mean anything. So if you have a faith, great, that's wonderful. Uh, I, I don't want to talk people out of their religions or faiths, but what I do want to do is make sure that when they are utilizing their faith to, as an excuse to shame themselves or um, you know, self-deprecate or humiliate themselves, then you, know, you have to recognize that that part of your religion is the colonizer part. Mm -hmm. You're utilizing the tools of the colonizer to colonize yourself over and over and over again. And that in its of itself is traumatizing. Yeah, it really is. If you believe that God is in everyone and everything, that means that God is inside of you right now. And where does God live? God lives in heaven, which makes your body, spirit and soul, a literal heaven on earth right now. You are heaven. So mm -hmm. why are you going to disrespect your body in this way? Why are you going to disrespect your soul, spirit, and mind in this way? Additionally, if you believe that Christ died on the cross to save us from sin, you believe that he died for you, not just some other glom of people randomly yeah. out there in the world in the past. He was for everybody. If that's the case, it was also for you. And if he created you and then he died for you, doesn't that like um, stand to reason you might be worthy of those things? Yeah, just kind of challenging the dissonance that's created by organized religion as opposed to like the core meanings. Yeah. That's a that's a tough one though, because like you said, depending on where you're looking through the doily, there's a lot of folks that have so much shame because of religion. You know, like if they're if they're queer, if they're gay, whatever it is, if they're sexual, and thinking like, oh shit, well, if if God is with me all the time he knows what a terrible person I am because I'm doing these things that are so wrong. Yeah. Well, and, and I like to make that argument that most of these religions believe I, I've yet to find a religion that doesn't believe this. Most religions believe that God is all knowing, mm. all powerful and makes yeah. no mistakes. And if that were the case, then God would have, if, if God really truly believed that, for example, queer people were going to go to hell, would he have created queer people? Like the studies have shown that, that people who are queer are born like this, right? They're not, it's not like invented or they decide one day, oh yeah, I guess I'll be gay. Like that's not how it works. So if, he, if we've shown in studies that, that we are born 
with these predispositions, then that's not a mistake, right? So how's God going to make this mistake and then judge you for his mistake? It seems rather hypocritical of a God who's Mm. supposed to be all powerful, all knowing and all loving. Yeah. I feel like we could go on on that topic for so long, and I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to another episode about religion and sexuality called If God Created My Clitoris with Brittany Brodus. But because I know we have so much to cover, I'm going to like segue a little bit. And and in your bio, uh, you call this like practical, helping clients find practical spirituality. So even if it isn't religion, what is practical spirituality? Like what is spirituality if it's not God in the organized religion sense? Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. I think, um, you know, the first thing about spiritual health is that it is very close to mental health. And so for me, for my journey, finding my way spiritually started with going to therapy because I was so reactive in my life and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't heal the relationships in my life and why I was mm. constantly repeating the same cycles with people over and over and over again. Yeah. And so I finally went to therapy and then I decided to start meditating. And, and really, you know, once I, once I got into therapy, I was really able to kind of analyze, you know, why I do what I do. And that's great. But what else is there? And in my meditation practice, that's when I started to really recognize how I could grow self-compassion and love in a way that expands outwards from me and literally encompasses everything in existence. And that's something that only my spiritual practice could have given me. And so when I talk about spiritual practicality or uh, practical spirituality, rather, what I mean is you don't have to be some Zen Buddha on the mountaintop. Okay. I'm not asking my clients to meditate for 45 minutes to an hour a day. We've got that kind of time anymore. Well, then that's a big ask if you haven't been meditating at all. And yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I like a lot of people have these these myths that they think uh, they they project onto meditation. Like, oh, I have to sit in lotus position with my eyes closed, and you know, look, newsflash: if you've experienced a deep amount of trauma, your nervous system does not feel comfortable sitting still and keeping your eyes closed for long periods of time. Your fight or flight totally. response gets triggered, and so if you are feeling really resistant to sitting with your eyes closed in meditation, you don't have to do that. You can walk. You can keep your eyes open. You can do. Anything, you can meditate in any way as long as you don't operate a vehicle. Please don't drive and meditate. Don't, just don't do that. It's, you can kill yourself. But otherwise, you can meditate in any way you PSA. want. PSA. <laughs> please, please don't be like, well, that one chick on Sluts and Scholars says I can meditate in any way. Don't meditate. Okay, well, I feel like you can, you can be like practice mindful driving, but yeah, not yeah. like, not what you're saying. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Right. We're not trying to, to get in touch with the divine in, in the car. We're trying to get in well, touch with what's going to keep us alive. <laughs> yes. Follow that safety advice, though. I do know people who do use driving as a way to, I guess, as their spirituality, whether that be like professional like racers or drivers or, um, you know, just folks who are like, oh, I just want to like hit the road and take off. Um, and that's sort of their spiritual practice. So I imagine that's maybe a positive, but obviously what you're talking about is like, uh, don't maybe challenge to get to another level of consciousness while you're behind the wheel. <laughs> yes, please. Exactly. And, and what, that's one of the things that um, when I talk about practical spirituality as well, what you're mentioning and, and what we're talking about with the ability to drive mindfully is this idea of you can live mindfully all day long, every day, which is what I've actually been able to foster in my life now. And that is a very practical spirituality. So when I get up in the morning, before I even get up, I meditate for, you know, at least 10 minutes and then I get up and I feed my cat. And when I feed my cat, I pet her tail and I feel how soft her tail is. And I express gratitude for this amazing little creature who runs around my house, scratching everything all the time. And then when I make my coffee, I open the bag of beans and I take a deep breath in. I close my eyes and I try to smell the earth that it grew in, the sunlight that shone down on it as it was growing. I try and smell the water in the earth. I express gratitude for the farmers who picked the coffee beans that I'm now about to roast or to to grind, right? And then as the coffee is brewing, I listen to the sound of the percolator and I try and like imagine what it's like to, to have water, clean water that's fresh that comes out of a tap for everyone in the world. And I send that loving wish out to the world. So these kinds of things, I mean, you can make anything into ritual. You can make your whole life practically spiritual. It's 
just a matter of mindfulness. And that's what meditation taught me. And so many of us, I mean, myself included, start our mornings by reaching over, stopping the alarm because it's on our smartphone and then picking up our smartphone and getting on Instagram and email and just like totally checking out. Well, and I, I do that some days too. Um, but, but one of the, the rules I've made for myself, just it's a boundary I set for myself, is that I don't get out of bed until I've meditated. So even if I pick up the phone and I do some work for an hour on Instagram, answering messages or sending emails or whatever, uh, I will still put the phone down. And before I'm allowed to get out of bed and feed my howling cat who is screaming at me for breakfast, I have to meditate. Yeah. Well, and like you said, though, it's not enough maybe just to see the shadow and know that it's something that is maybe coming from a trauma place. It's not enough just to gain that insight, but there needs to be more. What kind of things do you teach folks in terms of how to, like once they know what their shadow parts are, then what? Well, I'm so glad you asked. There, there are so many different ways to do shadow work. A lot of it, you know, uh, people like journaling. I, I offer journal prompts all the time to my clients in Reiki sessions because what I do when I give Reiki I'm also reading your energy for messages of where pain lies in your body. I do energy mapping that's somatic. And then I will let you know, okay, here are the pains in your body. Here's what they associate with. These are the issues we need to talk about with your life. Let's drill down. And oftentimes there will be journal prompts that'll come through for me that I'll be like, okay, these are questions that your energy is asking you to ask yourself, go write on these. Or, um, you know. And just to, to maybe pause for folks who aren't as familiar with it. What is Reiki and why do we practice it and, and how, does it, how does it really work? I know it can be hard to like put into words because it is such an embodied practice, but like, I don't know, I imagine, and I know it's not from this, but I feel like it has been colonized by like white people who love like Gwyneth Paltrow goop. And so they're like, oh, Reiki crystals, like bullshit. Like what, it, what is it really? What is it about? How does it work? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. So Reiki is an indigenous Japanese practice, healing practice based in um, a a mixture of Taoist religion and and, um, like Taoist shamanism and then um, a little bit of Buddhism and um, some other kind of shamanistic Japanese practices that were um, part of the ancient Japanese culture. And uh, when um, Master Usui, who really kind of, he, he named the term Reiki, right? Before these healing practices, you know, it was literally hands-on healing. People put their hands on other people and channel the energy that flows in everything in the universe. Some people call it chi, some people call it ki, some people, I mean, there's all sorts of words for it. Um, they would channel this energy into people with their hands and these, you know, medicine people and shamanic healers in these indigenous areas in Japan would do this. And and every indigenous culture on earth has some form of hands-on healing, by the way. They all have different names. Um, But Master Usui, who really kind of popularized Reiki and found the name of it and found the symbols, uh, he received the symbols when he was meditating that we use now in our Reiki practices, um, he really did, at the very beginning of his his practice, westernize it and um, separate it from the religious side from the sh- shamanism, from the connection with nature, from the connection with spirituality. And the reason why he did that is because at the time, Japan was becoming more and more westernized and the emperor of Japan was um, literally killing people for practicing um, indigenous Japanese religions. And so if you weren't westernized, if you, you, know, if you weren't gonna head in that direction that Japan had decided it wanted to go, you well, were putting yourself in danger. And so Reiki from the start has been unfortunately very westernized. And then it only kind of devolved from there. It's, it's only really gotten worse. And there are some incredible Reiki decolonizing experts out there. Um, uh, one is um, Marika, she's at Moon Health Northwest on uh, on Instagram. I highly recommend everybody in the world follow her. She did an incredible uh, podcast episode on inciting a riot uh, called Inciting Okay, a everyone take riot. out your phones, follow her now. I, I, I guess yeah. it's not approved. I haven't checked it out yet, but uh, let me know what you think of her. Yeah, she's she's really great. And she's she is Japanese. She's an indigenous Japanese um, Reiki practitioner and decolonizing Reiki expert. And, and I highly, I mean, I've learned so much about the decolonization of Reiki from her. Um, so highly recommend to everyone, but 
Um, but yeah, so it has become really westernized. But really what it is, is like I said, it's this shamanic Shinto Taoist marriage of hands-on healing. And uh, so you place your hands on a person who's receiving. And, and really me as the healer, I'm not healing you. Let's be clear about that. Reiki, this energy is in everyone and everything. I'm just a meat straw. I'm a funnel through which universal, (laughs) right. I'm a meat straw. It's really cute. I am a funnel through which the energy flows. That's all I do. I literally just facilitate you getting access to the thing and that's it. And it's usually, I mean, if anybody spends enough time in a meditative practice, I'm I'm sure you probably, if you meditate, you've probably experienced this before where sometimes, you know, your, your hands will start to tingle or your legs or feet will start to tingle or your vision will start to get sparkly or you'll start to see colors come through. These kinds of things are that energy around us that our bodies are now starting to tap into as we um, reach other levels of consciousness, even if it's just for a moment. Okay, you know I don't recommend any products unless I try them myself. And of course, that doesn't mean that they're for everyone. But let me tell you, I love the Oh My G. Right now, Oh My G is offering Sluts and Scholars listeners 30% off when you go to iobatoys.com and enter code S&S at checkout. I've been trying for a long time, if you can't tell from my past episodes, to practice squirting. And this product really helped me to reliably learn to make it happen and it's pretty awesome. Oh My G is an internal G-spot massager for bodies with a vagina. The unique massaging pearl mimics that come-hither motion. The exact same motion as if you're using your fingers to hit the spot, only a lot less work. And honestly, even with the pearl, or even when the pearl isn't turned on or moving, I like the shape of it on its own. It's pretty amazing. The Oh My G is made with 100% uh, body-safe, FDA-approved silicone. I think it's a must-have for any sex toy collection, especially if you enjoy internal stimulation. And a fun bonus, it can also function as a wonderful external stimulator if you're into that. Right now, Oh My G is offering Sluts and Scholars listeners 30% off when you go to iobatoys.com and enter code S&S at checkout. That's iobatoys.com and promo code S-A-N-D-S to get 30% off your Oh My G. And that offer is also available in our episode description. iobatoys.com, promo code S&S. Now back to the episode. You mentioned that maybe like indigenously speaking, that it is attached to a, you know, a religious spiritual practice and, but it also sounds like that it doesn't have to be something that is like religious or spiritual. Like you said, you are Catholic and you're practicing Reiki. Like how do the two fit together? Well, they, they don't really. Um, I, I will probably be excommunicated sooner rather than later because the Catholic school of bishops or whatever it's called has put out a paper declaring that Reiki invites demonic possession. Also on the list of things that they, they said invite demonic possession is playing Dungeons and Dragons. So there's that. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep, but you yep, have to totally. send me this. I have no, I, I have will. never heard this before. That's oh, I, I absolutely will. Yeah. And actually I have what three doesn't, friends. What who doesn't play. invite demonic possession? I wonder. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that, that therein lies the question. Um, again, we're talking about religion as a tool for um, retaining power right? Religion as a tool for colonizing and for oppression. Yeah. Um, and Dungeons and, and Dragons requires you to be really creative. Right. Right. Yeah. And think outside the box. Right. Which can be really threatening, right? To a religion that has said, this is, this is the only way that, that there can be truth. Um, and so, so yeah, no, um, it doesn't go very well together. Uh, but that said, the way that Reiki has been westernized, um, most Reiki practitioners believe that it does not have to, anything to do with spirituality or any sort of religion. And therefore, many Reiki practitioners of many religions exist. And I don't believe you have to be Taoist or Shinto in order to practice Reiki. I do think that it's important when we're utilizing these indigenous um, healing practices. Uh, Reiki, the name Reiki, it belongs to the Japanese people. It belongs to the ancestors of those people who created this healing practice. And while there are indigenous practices all over the world, if you're going to use those, you're going to want to use the appropriate names. You're going to want to give respect and honor mm. to the appropriate ancestors, right? So um, so is there something appropriating or colonizing about using it, you think? Uh, I think it depends. 
I think it depends. I think what really is appropriation is when we when we do it without offering respect and without offering recognition of where it comes from. Mm. And so uh, if I were to practice Reiki and, you know, um, if I were to give uh, weekend Marriott courses and and certify a thousand people at once just so I seems like you're talking about someone that's specific. <laughs> oh no, I'm really what I'm really doing is talking about the majority of our Reiki industry. Now. I know, that's yeah, what I'm like. yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. It's, it's, yeah, and and that's something that Marika also discusses is that you know this energy that 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 I utilize it came to me. I didn't. I literally got certified after I received Reiki because I wanted to legitimize my business in a Western colonized world. I didn't need the certification. I just needed to know what the hell was happening to my hands and why every time I touched someone in pain, their pain went away. I was like, what is this? So, so that's why I got my certification. Um, but, but, you know, really, if, if we put people into these programs, and we teach them all the symbols in a weekend and we teach them some of the history and then send them out into the world to practice. Really all we're doing is teaching them how to write the alphabet. We're not teaching them how to work the spell. Mm. I like that. I like that metaphor. Um, so what are, what are some things that Reiki can help with and how does it work with treating trauma? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So Reiki. Um, <laughs> I'm just killing it with these questions that you're like <laughs> making me feel good. You're like, Oh, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Reiki is an intelligent energy, so it goes wherever it needs to go. I can't promise you it's going to heal a specific thing in your life, right? I, I, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can promise it will heal you. And so what that means is that if you have a trauma, let's say it's a physical trauma, there's also going to be a mental aspect or an emotional aspect and a spiritual aspect to that trauma, right? What we find is that when we're administering Reiki, we often feel clients entering into deep states of relaxation. They release tension they've been holding because of a trauma for a really long time. And I'm sure as a therapist, you know that our brains are super smart, they can like pretzel twisty turn themselves into any direction to convince us that we're not in trauma when we are. I mean, how often have you heard yourself say it? Like, oh, but I've been through worse before. I'll be okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. Or, or, right. Or there are children starving in Africa. This is the first world problem. Or other people have it so much worse than me. Right. Yep. Um, we say these things to ourselves and essentially gaslight ourselves because our brains are trying to keep us from having a mental breakdown. Thank you, brain. I appreciate you. But also our body, but our body's like, I don't give a shit what your brain is saying because I'm feeling it in my body. Right. Right. Our bodies are kind of stupid. Unfortunately, they, uh, well, or fortunately, depending on how you like, well, they're like back to, back to basics. Right. Right. They just, they don't know. They, they, the body, the nervous system studies have shown that the nervous system can't tell the difference between traumas which means that your body cannot tell the difference between your dad yelling at you that one time when you were four and you getting mugged at gunpoint in the street. Your body can't tell the difference between you getting a fender bender and you watching someone get murdered. Like it doesn't understand your mind gets it, but your body, your nervous system does not. And so uh, when you experience a trauma, oftentimes what Reiki can do is because it sends this, this energy into your body, into your energetic sphere, it can not only affect the um, like regeneration of myelin lining in your nerves that helps you to battle um, anxiety or battle that nervous system trauma that your body's experiencing. But it also can put you into deep states of relaxation that allow you to work through mentally and emotionally those traumas, but not have to worry about having your body be activated and triggered while you're working through those things. So I'll have, I have clients all the time on the table who will start to cry and we'll just work through it together um, or, or clients who will say, you know, uh, I, I came in with this just unbelievable pain behind my right shoulder and now it's gone. Um, and that happens because, you know, this, and this is something that I, I was hoping we'd get to talk about today is that one of the things I work with with clients a lot is energy mapping in the body. And so the right side of your body is controlled by the left hemisphere of your brain, right? So if you okay. were to go get an MRA and they were like, uh, wiggle your right pinky, the left side of your brain would light up mm -hmm. and the left side of your brain is where organization lives, the ego mind, the conscious mind, um, you know, uh, your, your, all of your logic centers are in the left hemisphere of your brain. 
And so that's why when we're mapping energy, uh, we say that the masculine side of yourself lives on the right side of your body. And then on the left side of your body, which is controlled by the right hemisphere of your brain, that's where your emotions live, your subconscious, your dreams, your creativity. And so we say that the left side of your body maps your feminine energy. And um, there's, a, there's a strong relief in, in almost every, every um, you know, indigenous healing modality out there that we are all, each of us, a balance of masculine and feminine uh, energies, and that we all together create unity and wholeness within ourselves. I wonder if there's, I'm sure there are, but I wonder if there's any cultures that don't call it, that isn't gender-based, like that's like, this is an energy and this is an energy, because even in like the naming of this is masculine and this is feminine, it's like culturally based of like feminine is emotional and masculine is logical. So I love the the balance of energies, but it's like, even in the naming of it, it's like so stereotyped, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And, and I think that it really doesn't matter if you are male, female, or non-binary, or non-gendered, or agendered. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the stereotypes that we have applied to the binary genders, male mm-hmm. and female, right, are things that we all are capable of embodying. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that's, it, it, it's neither here nor there, whether we choose to call it masculine or feminine. But I do think that for the lexicon of the way that we as a species communicate with each other now, and as a culture mm-hmm. communicate with each other now, those words seem to be the most efficient way to say what we want to say and, and to um, be understood for what we're saying. Yeah. So say, say more about the finding that balance between the, the different energies. Sure. So um, think of masculinity and femininity like two coins okay mm-hmm. on one side of the coin is the toxic heteronormative stereotypical tropes that we assign to each of the binary genders on the other side the divinity so if you take the coin and you flip it up in the air and it falls on the ground uh and the toxic side is facing up then the divine side can't be seen it's like schrodinger's divinity does it even exist we don't know mm-hmm. You flip over the coin and the divine side is facing up and now the toxicity no longer exists. So uh, there are three main toxic stereotypical tropes. Let's start with the feminine and then we'll go to the masculine. They each have okay. So the feminine ones are the uh, wise ass. She's the gossip. She's the one who always gives advice to her friends but never takes it herself. She's the busybody, right? Uh, the next one is the caretaker. She cooks, she cleans, she takes care of the kids, she eats last, she sleeps last, and she drains herself dry literally for everyone else before herself because that's her job in life and she doesn't complain about it. She's the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is the over-emotional or the crazy, right? This is why we can't have a woman president because when she's on her period, she's going to start World War III, obviously. Right, of course. Right. right. So you flip over the coin to the divine side. And the over-emotional slash crazy becomes the divine powerful. Recalling now what I just said about us all being each of, of both, when we are our most divinely powerful, we are able to stand in the power of our emotions and really acknowledge, okay, I'm feeling sad right now, and that's okay. That's this moment right now. It's not going to be forever. And I acknowledge that, but I want to hold space for myself and my sadness right now and acknowledge that grief is just love with no place to go. And isn't it beautiful that I have a heart that loves so much that I can feel this sadness right now. How exquisite. Our emotions are gifts that we give to ourselves. Our subconscious gives to us to teach us what needs healing, how much we've grown, what we care about. They tell us who we are. So our emotions are incredibly powerful when we're apologizing for being happy or really excited, right? You're just talking about that, that, oof, I'm sorry, I'm just really happy right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, apologizing for our emotions is not how we stand in the power of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back to the caretaker, back to the toxic side of the coin, our caretaker, she cooks, she cleans, she doesn't complain. You flip over the coin to the divine side and the caretaker becomes the divine nurturer. When we are divinely nurturing ourselves, we are able to show up for ourselves in unconditional self-love and support. Uh, Think of it the way a mother holds her child. 
Imagine, close your eyes and imagine that you are holding a baby in your arms and you're looking down at this beautiful baby and you say to it, I love you. You are mine and you are of me and as such, you are perfect. And you're gonna fall sometimes in life and you're gonna fuck up and it's gonna be painful, it's gonna really hurt, but I will always be here to pick you up and help you through it because I love you and to me, you are perfect. You are of me. Ooh, you are girl, mine. I'm not even on your table. And I'm like, my glasses are fogging up over here. Right, right. So so now, obviously, you recognize that baby is you. And you're yeah, I call, I call it self, self-parenting. Right, right. And, and that's the thing is, uh, one of the things that we need to recognize about divinity, if we're going to truly embody divinity in our lives, is that it has to start from within. Because the minute you try and make it start from without, you're becoming the toxic trope again. Because the minute you try and show everyone else that you unconditionally love them, but inside you secretly hate yourself, guess what you've become? You're actually now just the caretaker again. Mm-hmm. You have no boundaries. You have no self-respect. So you're giving it out to everyone else, mm-hmm. trying to be the people pleaser, right? Yeah. And then you're um, drained dry. Right. Exactly. And then, then it's toxic again. You got to start from within and then move outward. Uh, and then the next one, uh, the last one is um, the wise ass, right? So you flip the coin over. And the wise-ass, uh, oh, I forgot to mention one of the cool things about the wise-ass stereotype that people might, might relate to as well is we see it all the time in like cleaning commercials, okay? The man's always making the mess. The woman's always cleaning up after him and like, oh, I know how to handle this. And then she, she like breaks the fourth wall of the camera and like winks with the camera or something, right? Because she's the smart one and he's the one who makes all the messes, <laughs> right? The yeah. wise-ass, yeah. So, so you flip the coin over and the wise-ass becomes the divine wise. When we are our most divinely wise self, we understand the, the universal truth that our experience creates our wisdom, right? That's how wisdom is grown from experience. But not only that, that our experience is uniquely ours. There's not one single person who will ever have the same experience that we have. Therefore, our wisdom that we have to share cannot be mimicked by anyone else. It can't be given or shared by anyone else. The greatest gift you can ever give somebody is your story. And the minute you actually recognize the truth of that is the minute you're being your most divine wise self. So how do we, how do we flip the coin and or how does Reiki help us flip the coin to move away from these tropes and away from trauma um, to this divine self? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I, I keep saying that, but it's true. These are really great questions. Um, so, so Reiki is something that helps us balance our energies. You know, I, I utilize it to open and balance chakras. I use it to balance energy. I also utilize it to help you heal physical wounds. And as we go through any healing practice, any healing practice, if it's yoga, if it's meditation, if it's working out or starting a new diet plan for yourself or whatever it is, Anytime you are going to therapy, anytime you are putting effort into your own healing, you are getting closer to your most divine self every single time. So it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're doing it from a place of wanting to care for yourself, you're going to get there. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I I like hearing that because I think uh, myself and a lot of colleagues of mine put a lot of pressure on ourselves as therapists and and practitioners, because of course we want to do a good job and help folks. And I think just remembering that sometimes, sometimes just the act of people creating that space for themselves and coming week to week, like is enough, is doing something and just being is doing something. It can be hard not to get carried away with like, how do I, how do I help more? How do I go? Like you said, flipping back to that caregiver side of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, I, I've been in therapy for many years now, and I, I won't say that going to therapy by itself weekly without doing any of the work is going to heal you. It probably won't. But if your option is not doing anything or going to therapy weekly and not doing any of the work, I'm going to vote for therapy because eventually you're going to want to start doing the work. <laughs> so, you know, it's the same thing with any practice. I would rather you start than to stay in your place of trauma, in your place of your shadows, in your place of your... um your self-acceptance in this, in this, you know, unfulfilled place. Well, I think what you said is it rings true is it's a practice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not a perfect, it's not a win. It's a practice. Yeah. And so, um, so that was the feminine coin. And then the masculine coin, we look at our toxic masculinity. Um, The first one in our toxic trope for men is the bully. 
I think when we use the term toxic masculinity, this is often what we're thinking of is the bully. He will punch a dude out in a bar for looking at you funny. He will club the saber-toothed tiger to save his little cave family. Violence is his answer and anger is the only emotion he feels. Um, the next one is the breadwinner. He brings home the bacon. He puts a roof over his family's head. He put clothes, puts clothes on their backs. And that's all he ever has to do to show his love for them. He doesn't have to show up in vulnerable ways. He doesn't have to be there emotionally for them. He just provides. And that's all he's required to do. Also, mm -hmm. if he can't provide, it makes him a total failure as a person, even if he's a great human being. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, that's the bully, the breadwinner. And the last one is the rock. He's stoic. He feels nothing no emotions, no sadness, no joy. It's only anger. And that's when he's being the bully, but nope, nothing penetrates him. He's super strong. There are no problems. There is no trauma. There is no vulnerability. We don't talk about that stuff. Yeah. Just man up and man up. Be don't be a pussy, right? We hear it all the time. So you flip the coin over and the rock becomes the divine resilient. When we are able to lean vulnerably into our traumas to heal through them instead of trying to ignore them and push them down for forever, uh, we become more resilient and actually truly stronger on the other side. It's like if you were to gash your arm open. Mm -hmm. Once it heals, you are going to have, um, you're going to have a scar, right? You're going to have scar tissue there. And now the skin will be harder to penetrate. It is now stronger, but it has to heal first. Because if you don't heal, it gets festered and infected and we might have to cut off the whole arm and then where will we be, <laughs> right? So that's the, that's the divine resilient. Uh, the next one is the breadwinner. We flip over the coin and the breadwinner becomes the divine provider. When we are divinely providing for ourselves, we're able to really sit and ask ourselves, what is it I need right in this moment and how do I give it to myself? And Bonus, here's the hard one that's really hard, especially I think for most everyone these days, sometimes in order to give yourself what you need, holy shit, you have to ask someone else for it. <laughs> Fuck. Right. That's very hard. vulnerable. Yeah, it's very vulnerable. But think of it this way. When you are asking someone for help, it is not an indicator of your incompetence. When you are asking someone to show up for you, it is an indicator of your self-love because you recognize as your divine nurturing feminine half that you are worthy of receiving what you need and that you are honoring this other person by giving them the honor of getting to show up for you. Mm. Right. Uh, and then the last one is the bully, right? Rape culture, the bully, domestic violence, the bully. You flip over the coin and the bully becomes the divine protector. When we are divinely protecting ourselves and our families, we are able to set boundaries healthfully, not because we want to push everyone away from us, but because we recognize our own limits as human beings. We recognize where we want to love ourselves better. And so we create those boundaries for ourselves. So those are your divine masculine and feminine. When we can really access um, the unity and the balance of that, that's when we find our most healed selves. That's when we're able to really drill down through trauma, through physical trauma, somatic trauma, emotional trauma, uh, you know, mental trauma, and really get into it and treat ourselves with compassion along the way, the whole way. Because that's how you heal trauma is with compassion. And what do you think has been most helpful for you in flipping some of your coins? Oh, or man. Better balance um, for yourself or, or with clients you've worked with. Like yeah. what's been most helpful in, in that practice? Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to acknowledge that if you are healing from a really deep trauma, the very first thing you need to do is regulate your nervous system. You can go to talk therapy all you want. I did it. Been there, done that. You can uh, go to, you can have your spiritual meditation practice. Been there, done that. But until you can get your nervous system to understand that it is safe in this moment right now, the work that you're doing is going to, in a sense, fall, fall on your own deaf ears. Mm -hmm. And that's not your fault. It's just, it's the way our nervous system works. So the thing that I like to start with, especially with clients who are experiencing like deep, deep, very extreme trauma is we do some somatic work. We really work on like when you are in a, an episode or when you're, you know, having a moment where you're flashing back to that thing that happened to you, I need you to stop. If you can, if you can keep from dissociating, I need you to stop and I need you to do a somatic hug do five minutes of um, tantric heart breathing, do, uh, you know, just five minutes of meditation, whatever it is to like bring your body back, shake it out, 
dance it out, hum, anything that will bring you into your body right now into this physical embodiment to recognize, okay, I'm not actually in that moment. Because that's the thing. Not only can your body not tell the difference between types of trauma, it can't tell the difference between a trauma that happened in the past and a trauma happening now. So if you're recalling that one time when you were four, yeah, it, your feels, dad yelled it feels at you, the same. It feels like you're in it right now. Yeah. And so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is Wait, um, what is tantric uh, heart breathing? Oh, well, um, I know you had Barbara Corellis on your show back in 2019, and she's amazing. Her In her book, Urban Tantra, she talks about uh, the heart breath. And so I highly recommend if anybody, any of your listeners haven't bought her book yet, you absolutely have to. She's a genius and her stuff's amazing. But it's this idea of really, um, I mean, you can utilize the kegels and the PC muscles as well, but um, I don't necessarily make my clients do that. A lot of my clients are survivors of sexual trauma. And, and we, we work through the tantra, the solo tantra work to help them with sexual trauma slowly. And so what I do for my heart breath for the somatic one first is I just invite them to close their eyes. I'm going to try with you. Do it. Yeah. Um, so put your hands on your heart, close your eyes and okay. breathe deeply into your body. But as you breathe in, imagine that it's not your lungs that are inflating, it's your heart. The oxygen goes through your throat and right into your heart, expanding your heart. And as you exhale, the heart kind of decreases in size and collapses in on itself. And then you inhale again and expand that heart. And you'll notice your posture getting better. I can see it happening for you right now on the computer. <laughs> My eyes your are closed. Shoulders, <laughs> yeah, your shoulders straighten. Your chest kind of moves outward. And you just do that for five straight minutes. It really places you back into that, into that moment. Mm. I like it. Wow, we have covered so many amazing things. We are sadly running out of time. You will have to come back because we didn't even talk more about uh, Tantra. Um, and again, you can, if for listeners, you can go back and listen to Barb Corellis' episode about that. Um, but I am ready to book my appointment with you. Uh, how can other people get in touch, um, find what you're doing, follow your work, um, and, uh, and hire you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at ascendingarts. Um, or you can visit my website, uh, that's ascendingarts.exchange, not .com, not .org, it's .exchange. And, uh, and then you can book with me there. Um, and just so, so all of your listeners know, I offer uh, free healing to BIPOC as part of my oppression healing program. I offer it every Thursday. So if you're interested in booking a session with me uh, and you are black or indigenous or a person of color, please go ahead and book on my website through my oppression healing program. And I'd be honored to help you heal your, your, uh, and go on your decolonization journey as well. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Maria. Again, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, and you can email if you have any recommendations for guests or questions at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.